Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page, even if it's just a buck, it keeps us advertisement free, and subscribing. Today we are joined with Dr. Peterson, who is the co-founder of Genomic Expression and based out in New York City. The company is pioneering the development of sequence-based cancer diagnostics, which we're going to get into in this episode and learn just how amazing her work is. The little sneak peek on that is one in four cancer treatments don't actually, no, only one in four cancer treatments prolong life. The other three-fourths are not effective treatments, essentially, and we'll, we'll get into that. Prior to genomic expression, she founded she founded Proximity Venture Advisors, which is an international business consulting company that helps life science sector type startups and, and companies with their licensing deals, reference clients and capital, that type of thing. She had over a billion dollars of deals on her resume. She's worked with pretty much everyone you can imagine in that industry. She also has been involved with five startups, including co-founding three of them. I mean, she has basically, Dr. Peterson has over 20 years of experience. She's done pretty much everything. And now she's working on genomic expression. And in this episode, we get a great sense of who she is, what she's passionate about, and why she cares so much about this. It's a really great episode if you want to get a sense of the passion behind the science, as well as where the science comes from. One in four cancer treatments actually prolong, prolong life, so three-fourths of them do not. That means like three-fourths of people are, are kind of like suffering unnecessarily. So like, how did you come to realize this? Like, how did you find this out? I'm not the person who aggregated that data. It was published by the Personalized Medicine Coalition, and they took it from a paper. So, but but it's never, you know, I say it even in in the, in the academic settings, and there's no pushback on those numbers. This, a good drug on a good day works in half the patients. A drug on a normal day works in 20% of the patients. And my question is, what do you do with the other 50 to 80%? You know, the, the inconvenient truth is that um, they will relapse. And then in, in our current paradigm where we treat every patient the same, they're just going to get more chemo or they're going to get more something that is more toxic. And it, at that point of time, their health is going to deteriorate. Um, so having the experience of going through this uh, as a family member multiple times, um, I, I started thinking this, it, it, some, it must be, you must be able to do this better. And what I came to realize, you know, downstream after developing our platform, which we call One RNA, is that we have the academic setting work so hard on making patients look the same when they are so incredibly different that when you stop trying to put them into baskets, treating them with one drug and literally disrupting this paradigm that we've been operating in with one disease, one marker, one drug to one patient, many different markers and many different drug options, then I firmly believe that we will have completely different outcomes once we, we, go full, full frontal into that. 
And the reason why I say this is that there are signals in the clinical trial data sets that, for instance, a, a triple negative breast cancer patient that get on checkpoint inhibitor as a first line of treatment instead of a last line of treatment. How do you get there? Well, you get there by producing actionable information that allows you to navigate towards that. Because it won't be, it never be 100% of the tumor negative, it would be maybe 20%. But then you have 80% and you have, you then dive into what is it that drives these particular cancers and there are other avenues for those patients. But, but, but you know, what we're saying is that the patient needs to get the best treatment first, not last. And especially with, with if chemotherapy is the standard treatment, because to a certain extent, you wipe, you literally wipe out your immune system. So, so how, how is that going to work with, when you then, without any, after you've done that, you, you bring on the immune therapy? That's not going to work, right? So, yeah. It does seem very backwards. We, we, when we look at patients, into, yeah, yeah, test first and then treat instead of treat and then test when <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really a very simple, you know, technically a very simple change, but from, from, from a system standpoint, it's not a simple change. It's a paradigm shift. How long have we known, like I didn't know about this until I learned about you, how long have, have we known that like only like 20% or 25% will really be effective on a person? Have we known this for like a, a very long time or is this like... With Several recent- decades. The, these numbers have not changed a lot. They changed for, for small groups of patients. For instance, within the last three to five years with the, with the approval of the checkpoint inhibitors, the broadening of the label of the checkpoint inhibitors, more, more patients in a later stage setting have been rescued or, or saved by these drugs. And that, that's an amazing accomplishment. And uh, another paradigm shift in oncology that have turned on a massive new effort to increase those numbers and better understand the disease. We literally try to treat all cancers like nails with one hammer, you know, to make that analogy. And now we understand that there's screws and there's nails and they have different colors and they're all different and you need different uh, tools. So, um, so it's changing. Uh, and the doctors knows this, you know, the, the doctors that do research know all that. They, they already know this and they see the patients and they, they, they want to treat, they want to help their patients. Yeah. Like I, I imagine if I was a doctor, like knowing that I have a one in four chance of giving like the right treatment plan, I, I imagine that would make me very sad after a while, you know, like going through every day, like not knowing, like, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Ultimately, they, they got into it yeah. to help people. Right. So, so, you know, sometimes in that number is that you over-treat very early stage cancers. And, and you know, we invented this technology, I think, more than 50 years ago, where we color, take a slice of the tumor, color it, and put it underneath the microscope. And then because the cells look different than normal cells, we call it cancer. And this technology is 50 years old. Okay, so you get older, your, your cells in certain parts of your tissue starts looking a little different, and we call that pre-cancer or cancer, and we start treating these patients. A great example is, is prostate cancer, where we over-treat. 
because we have a very poor measurement of screening tests. The PSA test is, is just, it's a sign of old age. Your PSA goes up. Yeah, so does your age. That's always correlated, okay? Um, it doesn't mean that you have cancer, but now you've got high PSA. You have to intervene and then you take a biopsy. And then you look at these cells and they look old. Yeah, it's still not cancer. <laughs> but then you start treating and you, you take out the prostate of 50 men in order to save the life of one. That's the numbers. If you take out the prostate, you have side effects like, uh, or consequences like erectile dysfunction, incontinence. That's problems you have as a man, you have to live with the rest of your life, right? So you, I would guess that you would rather not lose your prostate and do a wait and see and, and make a, a, a more educated determination of whether or not this is tr worthwhile treating at all. Something you mentioned a minute ago, the idea that this is a mechanism we use, like this uh, personalized medicine, we do it mm -hmm. as a last line after going, yeah. through, going through everything. I think, yeah. I think a cancer doctor explained it to me once that like cancer treatments are basically, they, 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 they're, they're designed in a way where it kind of like affects one organ like one of your organs mm -hmm. will get it more than a different organ. They basically just keep going until that organ's like about to fail and they switch the next one, like a different type of drug. And they basically just keep switching yeah. around, hopefully like hoping that you, your organs will survive longer than the cancer will. And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, maybe that's a, 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 not the best way to describe Well, what, what happens and that was, especially when you, we were still working a lot using targeted therapies, you would uh, treat with one, targeted therapy and it would be effective but the like a, cancer is evolving constantly evolving and you put one pressure point on it and it it's it's going to change and it's going to try to escape that pressure by mutating into something else so so you have development of resistance to a lot of these targeted therapies so the cancer suddenly first it, it kind of keeps it in check and then it it bounces back so what where we are now in in oncology because of the um, successful development immune therapies or checkpoint inhibitors is that if we teaches the body to recognize these your own cancer cells as foreign then you won't relapse it's it's like now you know what to, the immune system knows what to look out for and if if it comes back the immune system will take care of it that's not that's the actual ab, absolutely opposite effect of what we see with the targeted therapy so immune therapies are a much more a much better strategy for treatment of cancer well our immune systems are intense I, i've read a couple of textbooks on our immune systems i don't know i don't know why just for fun i guess i mean there's like we have one cell that its entire job is just to remember like it, its job is yeah. just to remember yeah, yeah. yeah. It just like just yeah. it's around and waits and then it goes out there the we had an antibody expert on here and we basically like marveled at like how how small some of these some of these cells are like how simple they are and yet how much versatility they have at the same time but but the human body is just crazy but yeah so like activating like this we have an intense defense system. It's we wouldn't be here if we didn't. <laughs> yeah, like <there's> <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it. That's also why it's mind-boggling to me that we have operated in this 
very limited idea of of distilling human biological complexity to one marker stories and that's why i i again we are at the tipping point where we need a complete um uh change of that because it's not working and it, it, you know cancer is just the first disease that is so complex and and i'm you know surrounded by some amazing entrepreneurs so we're having a lot of conversation you could cure autoimmune inflammatory diseases potentially just understanding triggers and navigating patients or educating patients to avoid those triggers you can reprogram your immune system so it doesn't attack you there's so many other things you can do other than just popping pills <laughs> right so 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 you know i i believe that we are at this tipping point and as the different diseases starts being as these more personalized um, treatments are being in, implemented it will have this ripple effect throughout the whole healthcare system because you know it will be so dramatically different right now diagnostics as the box that we are being put in um, are undervalued it's kind of like if you could catch someone from falling like if you like if, you, if they're like two inches from the ground and you try and grab them it's much harder to get them to stop but if you can kind of see them right as they're teetering you can have that diagnostic test to see it you, you have so much more runway i'm all for i'm all for your method i don't know if you can tell <laughs> <laughs> like i'd rather someone yeah. catch me way before i'm at the ground then it's yeah. you know, then it's limited yeah and and it has implications to other fields that have been underfunded and under researched you know i want to give you an example of of a paper i read recently which blew my mind it was a Danish uh, uh, researcher that took the blood of uh, women that exercised and women that did not. And then she took a tumor and dunked it into the blood and transferred, uh, transferred it, it into a mouse model. Just that short contact with blood from somebody who exercised reduced the growth rate of the tumor. And what does that tell you? We, we, we are not utilizing the information that we already have about the effect of lifestyle that, and, and there's tons of data out there to support everything from how you eat, what, how, how well you sleep, to whether or not you exercise. These three things, we all know we need to do it, but we're not sitting in front of the doctor. The doctor's not telling you, listen, this is what you need to do plus the drug in order to survive. I would take it very differently if, if I had that personalized message from my doctor. It really matters what you choose to do beside being treated. You are actually, as a patient, in control of some of these parameters, how well you respond. Your, your chances of getting through this are dependent on how you deal with it and, and what you eat. So I, th I think that because we can see markers for how, you know, some tumors also get um, dependent on certain types of uh, nutrients. And, and there's, there's a whole new field there. Um, you can take that out of your diet, right? some, of, some of those nutrients, and you can reduce growth by doing that as well. You know, so we just add on more than one uh, drug uh, will 
potentially also increase the chances of response instead of just you know you, you we understand the whole pathway so you block this way you block this way you block that way and then suddenly you have response so there's so many things we can do it was in the new york times or something they had a special on this where if people just ate healthily and um i think there was like they even like defined what that meant an exercise that it would reduce mm -hmm. reduce dementia cases by a third and it's like you know i don't know if i had any you know my grandfather had alzheimer's so i'm yeah, so like at 30, and you can start seeing the signs at 30, like, I'm already eating healthy and doing those things now, but like, if I was like, living large, I guess, and eating unhealthily, I w at 30, I would just like, start out eating as healthily and, and as possibly as possible to, to prevent these things. Because it's, it's like, the, the longer you age, the, the your chances of complications in life go up. And so you, you want to have the highest quality when it's good, and then the, the lowest chance of death when it's bad, I guess. It's like, yeah. man, so, so I read a book uh, more than uh, 10 years ago called um, uh, Younger Every Year. And it was a, it's a phys uh, American physician. I actually met him in New York. I forgot the name of uh, the doctor. But we, we have this idea that as we grow older, we just accept, you know, uh, or, or maybe as you start here, you, you start up here when you're 20 and then you have just declines with age, right? So, so we've seen this with our parents, maybe our family members. But if you if you exercise and eat healthy, you can keep it up here, and then you know hopefully it'll be like this. <laughs> 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 you know, it's over. <laughs> you know, um, so I much rather have this than than a slow decline. And, but, but personally, I also know that that requires that we exercise and I exercise, you know, every day and it doesn't have to be two hours, right? It, um, you, it, one of the things that I like a lot is this little watch here, uh, no, no clocks. <laughs> it can be any watch that just counts how, how much you move and how much you exercise. I think we as, as, um, people are prone to lying to themselves. I definitely did not understand how little I moved during the day when I was working in front of the computer. And, you know, I, I read this paper, um, uh, Sitting is a New uh, Smoking. Uh, I think that was the title of it. You can try to Google that. Basically, living a sedated lifestyle is just a big risk factor is, is smoking. So when we sit in front of our computer for a whole day, we are engaging in risk behavior. That also means that we have to change the way we look at work. Yeah, you have to get up. If, you, if your excuse is you have to go get a cup of coffee or whatever it is, or maybe we should have mandatory. I think the Chinese and the Japanese are a little better at this. Get up and, and run around for... 10 minutes and then go back and sit. Um, you don't have to do high impact, you know, um, uh, work out and sweat a lot in order to get the benefits. Yeah, I, I try to, I don't know, there's like a funny catch song in America called, when, I don't know, I, I was a kid, so maybe they got rid of it, but it was basically get up and get out and be a player for an hour a day. And so like an hour a day, I'll just go on exercise. But it, it, it's just like I walk somewhere, but it, it, it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah but um, what? Yeah, walk yeah. is fine. 
you yeah. know but the problem is if you don't walk if you if you just walk into your car outside your house and then drive to the supermarket and shop and you know the number of steps you get in is not sufficient no. and you need to you need to think about how to to change something um yeah. so that you can get those uh, steps in well, I, had a, I had a friend who i won't i won't name who it is but like they thought getting groceries once a week was their exercise i was like you're not doing enough <laughs> get up you bum. Oh god. I would just bribe them to get out. But uh they they did eventually I I think the other aspect of exercise, and then we'll we'll jump back into what you're working on, but the you're more cognitively alert. If 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 all my exercise did was make me a little more alert and able to think as highly as possible, like that'd be worth it in and of itself. Because like no I would never want a dull day. Or like, you know, like uh I guess you've been working out for so long that maybe you don't remember when you didn't work out. But like a work a workout day versus a non workout day. I perform much differently in a mental head space. I think most people do. So like, I think just on that yeah. ground alone, like everyone wants to be like, I imagine their best so they can like right. do their best work every day. But, right. Well, I, you know, I, I exercised my whole life. I had a period of three months one time where I wasn't able to because I, I moved to the U.S. and I was working very hard in the beginning. Um, and I never let that ha- ever happen again. Even during my pregnancies, I was um, going to the gym to the extent that I was able to. My my second one was easy. I was doing African dance uh, because you don't jump, so you just sit down. But it's great exercise. And my my daughter came out loving you know African music. <laughs> so and having great rhythm. So it's interesting what happens. Um, but I did it, and I felt so much better. And my my you know recovering from uh, delivery was much easier because I was fit than with my first one, where I was you know a little bit too tired to. Uh, I didn't have the right supplements, so I was I was too tired. Yeah, that's the first one, right? Like you don't like yeah. you can read everything, but then it's like how does it? It's like the personalized medicine. You can read all the generalist stuff out there then it's like, how does it affect your body? You get better the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you read all the books, it's just, uh, it's, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, jumping back to the personalized stuff. The, yeah. um, so how, I, I think you mentioned that it's we're at a tipping point for yeah. the prevalence of this. And I think it started eight years ago where, where I think Obama started the personalized medicine initiative or something like that. I think it was about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. I'm curious, like how long until it's like a anyone could expect this? Like when they have a problem, they sit down with their doctor. That more often than not, the doctor's gonna be like, "Hey, here's your options," and one of them, mm-hmm. one of the options is gonna be a personalized treatment plan using one RNA yeah. or whatever as a diagnostic tool. Like how long until yeah. we're there instead of where we are now? Do you think? I mean, it's kind so, of yeah. So you know, we are in a very interesting situation here because the technologies are there, right? Mm-hmm. We're launching our product. Um, uh, as a diagnostic uh, early next year. So the technologies are there, um, but the healthcare system and the payer system, you heard of insurance companies probably, <laughs> are still operating in this old uh, paradigm. And what, what really uh, hampered the uh, penetration of some of those technologies into the standard of care uh, regime is the lack of payer support. 
and mm -hmm. and I, I I I talk about this on a regular basis because I want I want I we need to change it not just for the patient but we're also wasting money um, on on treatments that are ineffective. We should stop doing that. So I don't think it's uh, increased cost. I think it's an opportunity to um, reduce cost, but increase uh, out, um, outcome and, and quality of care. Uh, and that is a conversation that we're gonna uh, start having with some of these payers, um, we're developing a strategy around that. Um, but um, yeah, if, if things, maintain the same pace it will take a while for before your insurance company will cover it and then the only other option is paying out of pocket which is of course not desirable um and and will make the um access let's put it that way to to this life-saving technology we developed um it will take time extra time to to pay, be available for for people you know we we're gonna we're gonna start having those conversations we're developing a strategy around how how are we gonna engage in a constructive um dialogue with the payers um, we are in a very fortunate situation that we have the what's called the key opinion leaders um the the, the principal investigators of the clinic studies that we are undertaking are able to um, their opinion are able to move um, the field and that's really what's necessary but the payers still have to come on board the payers still have to support what we have accomplished for that to be for this test to be available for our patients so in in with with the realization of the situation we're also working a lot with uh, patient organizations and uh, patient organizations are already supporting us in in the clinical studies in different ways, uh, but maybe they can also support uh, providing access to the test in in this interim uh, phase that we will have to go through in order to get all the payers on board. Yeah, is is this a, just a problem that the U.S. is having? Because I, I know we have kind of a weird relationship with our healthcare. But I don't, maybe you're from. I, I wish I could say that that was the case. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I wish I could say that was the case. I would say that um, in contrast to drugs, there's not a, a centralized place where governments negotiate prices for diagnostics. Um, so it, it remains to be seen in terms of how Europe, how Europe is going to play out. Um, because of my background in Scandinavia, um, we already uh, started having a dialogue around it and having, you know, um, talking to certain doctors. I, I, this is my take on it. It would be unethical and unacceptable for Danes, and, and I believe that's true for the Norwegian region. If we demonstrate that this is life-saving, you, you have to implement and we we wouldn't be we wouldn't be supportive of a system where only people who have money will be able to access it. So you know, I believe that it will maybe take a little longer to get everybody on board, but then it would be a switch, like a switch, for 
for the whole Scandinavian region or, or Denmark in particular, because my you know network is deeper there. But um, I I think the same philosophy of a moral or value system is is uh, prevalent in Norway and and Sweden and Finland as as well. I would share really nicely. That's my homeland. I've never been there, but I'm, I'm Norse as well. I've yeah? always wanted to go. Yeah, but I like the fjords. Oh, you should go. Yeah. It's, a, it's such a different um, experience. Yeah, it's super cool. You you totally love it. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I've seen the girl with the dragon tattoo, and I like that yeah. was at Norway. So, and I like that. I don't know. Like the the atmosphere of it was nice, even though it was in winter. And winter kind of messes yeah. me up. I'm don't definitely gonna go there. During the summer, it's nicer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, much nicer. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because. In in Denmark and it's even worse in Norway and Sweden where and Finland because they're further up north. But I just remember getting up at uh, seven and leaving at eight, and then get to work, and then the sun will get up at nine. And that meant that I was at work while it was still I was getting to work in the dark, and the sun rose while I was working, and then at at four o'clock the sun went down. So so it was. During the winter, these three months of, of you know, winter is, is really hard to get through. The Danes uh, travel a lot, mm-hmm. usually to warm places, other places on the planet, because we need the sun. Um, but then when the spring happens in uh, May, it's like everything, everybody gets so excited and you go out and you stay out late and the sun never goes down. You know, you have this... Um, uh, you have to experience it. It's yeah. never pitch black. There's always this backlit to the sky and it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So when you're young, you go out and you never go to bed. <laughs> I think I think the most, I, I, I'm, I'm a big counter of like how much daylight we get. I know when the yeah. darkest day of the year is and it's in December. And I look forward yeah. to it because then, then it means like every all the, like it's all up from there. It's over. But, <laughs> yeah, I like I like getting all the sun. But yeah. in, the, in the U.S. where I'm at, we get really like 16 hours of sunlight at most. But then we never get more than 12 hours of dark time. So I feel like that's still you know it's still like more often than not it's light out. But like, it's not like Alaska where they get like I think Alaska gets like months where it's dark. I don't I don't know how people could do that because like the sun is so nice. Like having an entire day where you can't see the sun. Uh, I, I I don't know. Yeah, that's I, tough, right? Yeah. It's, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's like going uh, into the mines or something. It's, yeah. It's no, that was actually one of the things that I noticed when I moved over here. I was so happy during the winter because it didn't, you know, at least it was, it was, it could be cold, obviously, the same temperatures as in Denmark, but uh, it didn't get as dark and it, mm-hmm. it does impact you. So, yeah. 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 No, I, I yeah, definitely can echo that. The, the, I have to, I don't know. There's like a lot of weird things, but I, I go through my my house and I, and I uh, put in uh, those like fake uh, sun light bulbs that imitate the the sun, so you can kind of like cheat it at night. Like I don't know. I don't know if you're. If oh. you're ever, they cost like oh. three dollars more, but they it's like they it it, 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 it uh, illuminates and it gives you the same stuff that the sun does. So like you can't really tell the difference. So if you just like uh-huh. yeah, so if you like close the windows, like it's like daylight. And so I just leave them on until like 7 p.m. and I shut them off. I, I didn't know you could put in those um, things into your regular um, light lights. Yeah. So I'm going to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they're, first, yeah. You can get them anywhere. You can get them at Walmart. Walmart. Yeah. If anyone out there has a problem with the winter, get these light bulbs. Yeah. They're, they're all, they, yeah. they 
really helped. That and exercise, like it's the best thing to get through it. The, even on the cold days, I, but I don't know, probably get back to what you're working on. The, so Gene, Gene expressing this about uh, what you've built now. And I, don't know, I, was looking at, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I, 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 you've done quite a lot. <laughs> you've done way more than me. So I need to step up my game on these things. I've been but, busy. Yeah. <laughs> I keep myself busy. Yeah. The yeah. I don't I don't know how you have I don't know how people have kids and they're as busy as you are. Like I feel like this is not like a, a question, but like somehow you're able to balance it. Like it's pretty cool. But um I don't know, one day I'll have kids and then I'll know how to balance well, it. Well, I, I think I will say this to all the women who are listening, you have to have a husband that are willing to be a partner in the word of that in the sense in the full sense of that word. Mm-hmm. Um and that means that, you know, obviously you know, you're the incubator, but it doesn't mean that you have to do everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that that's aspect. And then when you have two income, you know, please go out and get some help, right? The yeah. best you can you you can do, and, and you know, because I was my my parents was not here, right? So the amount of help I could get from my own parents were limited but i delivered my my husband's parent uh, that was still alive uh, abuela and um it was it was just yeah you need help you know <laughs> help with, uh, with a lot of things in order to to because otherwise what happens is that when you get off work you have another job mm-hmm. and then you don't have time to play with your kids or be be with your kids mm-hmm. and that's not that's not desirable. No, the, I, I don't know when it started to be in a thing where, like I, for, for a very long time, it always was kind of like a village. Like I think it was a Native American mm-hmm. culture where everyone was kind of like a mom would help out with, like everyone would help out with the kids. Yeah. And then yeah. I don't know, I don't know, maybe in the last like 40 years, it's like people are very isolated. Like they're not, like it's almost like a bad thing to ask for help. Yeah. But like, I, I, I like that. Like a lot of my friends now are asking for help if they, if they have kids and they're like trying to balance everything. Yeah. Like, yeah, you have to have yeah. good aunties and friends and yeah. Well, what if they can have kids? And then you can just. So watch. I would get. Um, I will babysit for a night. Uh, you know, as a <laughs> present, a little note in an envelope. Call me if you need me, kind of thing. You know what? That is so valuable, right? Because mm-hmm. you will need it. <laughs> yeah. So I basically. I don't know. We should really be talking about your stuff, but I basically like watch my nephew all the time because he didn't. He didn't have his dad in his life. So I basically watched right. him all the time. So my sister could go work because she was, you know, yeah. finishing up college and stuff. And um, I don't know, it's a, it's a big load because, like, I don't know, my mom had six kids and she she would like, she had like three jobs. So, like, she was just always moving. I don't know. I don't know how she did it. She should probably listen. She'll listen to this one. She'll listen to this episode and uh, she'll get the compliment. But uh, I don't know, like six kids, like two two jobs. And I don't, that woman never stopped. Like, she drove like an hour to work every day. And wow. yeah, I, I don't yeah, know how she that, did it. That's a tough one. You, you know what you learn by... You know, as I said, the second one was easier, but then once you have the second one, they don't scale well. They were both toddlers at the same time. That's a lot. That's a big handful. That's actually more than two handful. And and my husband started thinking, should you have another one? I'm like, I don't have three hands, right? So <laughs> yeah. how do you handle three kids? You need one hand for each of them, at least when they're small. But I think what happens when you really get you know, if you get that many is that the oldest one becomes helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with the smaller ones. And I, I think uh, one thing that, 
you know, we just had to um, do in, in my family was uh, my kids learned how to help out. You know, mm-hmm. my kids learn how to clean the house, how to make, they're not, they're still lagging behind on, on doing dinners, but they can do it. They can, they can feed themselves. Now the teenagers is not a problem, but, but just a little trick. Uh, if you're familiar with, now uh, you can buy these uh, boxes with food and you can actually get uh, vegan or, or particular types of food. I'm using sun basket right now, but I'm not, you know, religious about whatever you can use mm-hmm. some of the other ones too. But this is my pitch to my kids. I'm like, here's a box. Here's the food. That's everything you need. If you can read, you can cook. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there is no excuse. And honestly, if you run into a problem, just call me. And mm-hmm. then I left. <laughs> it's important yeah. not to stay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they did amazing, you know, amazing meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooking's fun. It's like, and you have like, when I started, when I learned to cook, I was like eight and I, I learned to cook because no one would cook for me. Like they work too much, but um, I don't know, I like cooking. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think of it as a negative thing. I don't know, like now. Yeah, I, I like eating. <laughs> yeah. I like eating. And because of that, uh, I've, I've, I really, I, you have to be able to cook, right? Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. acceptable yeah. not to eat well for me. Uh, yeah, I know people yeah. that all they do is eat out, and it's like yeah. it, it, you don't know what you're eating when you eat. Yeah, it out. yeah. They, they 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 cook to satisfy your desire to eat, not to nourish your body, mm-hmm. and they put all sorts of stuff in it. Um, yeah, so eat at home, learn yeah, how so, to cook. And it's like three times. I don't even. I think they spend like nine times as much money on food than I do. Like it just. If they took that money and invested in a house, they'd have much more money than me. But all right, so yeah, <laughs> getting back to one RNA. Not that this yes. is on discussion, but um, what what made you choose to start Gene Expression? Like, I think it was you and your brother, and you're the CEO, yeah. and the CTO. So yeah, and you you saw the entire landscape and how like everything's kind of coming to the point where it's getting more and more accessible. But, right. Like, why did you take it up? You know, like you could, I mean, with, I don't know, with everything that you've done in your <laughs> life, you, you could probably do anything you want. So like, what made you feel like this is something that you can make? Maybe that's the truth in that. So, so, you know, um, a couple of things. I knew that we had to do something different. And I was um, going through this process with my parents and understanding genetics. I got into science because, um, I got interested in genetics. I became a um, chemical engineer, but always focused, took all the genetics courses, genetic engineering, all of that. Ended up working for a big biotech and um, uh, had always had a a fantastic track record in terms of accomplishing things to a point where like, what, what is it? What is my superpower here? I think the, the answer to that is, um, I'm able to synthesize of a lot of discrete data sources to to understand them in a in a novel way. And um, my brother, uh, my younger brother, who then got a PhD in genetics, obviously had. Um, and I call it. I'm the classic geek. He's a real geek. I think we're both geeks, but but different layers of geeks. He had the understanding of how to manipulate and play with uh, 
DNA, let me put it that way, and had a very creative mind around that. So it was a combination of, you know, basically an ass attitude to, I can do anything, basically, um, and, and we need to do something different than we're doing. I had a fantastic network because of my prior, um, um, the prior stuff that I'd done. We can talk about that later, but but bottom line is that I could call up people and get them on the horn and have a conversation. What do we need? How do we approach this? And how do we do it effectively? And and you know now we're talking about it. I worked for a big biotech. I did everything from R&D to production to sales and marketing. I know the nuts and bolts of building a biotech company. I've um, been incredibly successful in. Um, bringing new products to market, also understanding gaps in the market and coming back and developing new products. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I started my first company as a, a consultant uh, consulting company. I knew how to bring products to market in the US. And um, uh, Anecdote sent out direct mail to 400 CEOs, got a 25% response rate. <laughs> that is unheard of. Um, didn't even have a logo and uh, started my business that way. And ended up advising also for the Danish Minister of Foreign Affairs. And over a period of six years where I had two kids and worked part-time, I brought in a billion dollars to the Danish biotech industry. So I had uh, a lot of friends in Denmark. And one of them, Jesper Sotten, who i characterized as the grandfather of the Danish biotech industry, incredibly dedicated to curing cancer, started the Danish Cancer Institute, pioneer in immune oncology. 20 years ago, when nobody believed that we would ever get there, um, but got it funded, spun it out of the Danish Cancer Institute and started spinning out other companies and funding companies, went to venture capital. So bringing in these resources and then some other key resources in my network um um more the fact who's been playing with big data since he was little right two psds and uh, building our back-end informatics because there's a big part of the solution and then also tanya Kanigan, who has a postdoc from mit a engineer with a big e bigger than mine basically so, so I hired a lot of people that were much smarter than I was. And what I, what I bring to the table is bringing the right people in and then getting the, the different pieces to work together and understanding the, how, to, how to analyze this data and, and where we're going with it. Um, and being creative about everything, both in terms of what's happening in the lab as well as what's happening outside the lab. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a of my life. <laughs> I've been reading, I don't know if you're a fan of Ro- Roman history at all, but the, uh, Augustus, the first emperor, the, like, he was the nephew mm-hmm. of uh, Caesar. He was like the greatest emperor. Yeah. And I've been trying to figure out like what he read, because like when he was emperor, he did a lot of civil reforms and he like he made, he made basically, he basically made Rome really excellent and built an infrastructure that made it last really long time. And so I'm always wondering like, what? Like how, what allowed him to do that? And it's just like, and so I've been trying to figure out like what he read and basically he just read like philosophy and like learned how to think. And so I'm curious, did, did you, would you think that that's the similar thing of like you, you learned really like how to think and process information in an effective way. And then that your experiences really just gave you the right funnel, like knowing how to use these tools effectively or, or yeah. 
Or is there any yeah, other I, like special thoughts? You know, I actually started philosophy. Um, I, I think the other special source is that, you know, just because you have a degree, you're not done learning, right? Mm -hmm. So when I um, graduated uh, from the Danish Technical University okay. and started working, I immediately signed up for a business degree at the Danish Copenhagen uh, Business School. So I have a business degree on top of it. When I was done with that, I started to study philosophy at the university because I started having bigger questions that I, I wanted to, I, I was fascinated with the whole um, field of uh, philosophy. And as you said, it's how, you know, not what to think, but how to think and ask some very big questions and be able to find a way to answer them and argue. I, I still believe that math is so much better that <laughs> I'm a math person. You know, I, I uh, if you ask me what's my most uh, interesting uh, experience in math is the Laplace transformation. You can have a mathematical problem you can't uh, solve in this world and you can kind of transform it into a form where you can answer it and then you can transform it back to this world, you know, on an abstract level. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I think that when, in order to really be able to understand a lot of complex uh, data, Obviously, you have to be able to do some math. You know, it's it's very fundamental to to the process of of computing. But in contrast to just raw computing power, it's also seeing these patterns that are not you haven't connected the dot, you haven't created the algorithm yet, but you can see it, and and you have these discrete sources of data that comes at you from different. Uh, places and then you synthesize on it and that's something I, I think it would take a long time for computers to be able to do but let's see <laughs> it's a weird thing I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it my mm. I gave me a book on it I, I'll send it to you it's like a free book yeah you can read. yeah but uh, it, it has a lot of math in it I've, I got distracted learning the math and I haven't got yeah. artificial intelligence portion because I like right. math as well. so that's you know because we have more modified on board if if you want to develop uh these kind of machine learning algorithms and stuff like that you really need massive big data sets mm -hmm. and a faster way uh, because biology is not random right mm -hmm. there's a system there already that we to a certain degree already understand some parts of okay so maybe i've been generous here because you will never say you understand everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but I would call what we have created more of an expert system, where we literally deploy, you know, the brain of, of everything that's been published in oncology to understand how to deal with it, including mm -hmm. all the clinical studies and and all that, and and the fundamental understanding of of biology, so um, and cancer. So, so it's 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 more uh, it's a more intelligent system where you just you know I think a lot of people in in uh, in the field of AI just okay we're just gonna generate tons of data and then throw it at the machine and it's gonna tell us everything like the oracle um, yeah okay you need a ton of data and who knows what you're gonna get back uh, because it's not curated in any form um based on what we already know so so i think that's a longer road a longer 
the route uh, to take uh, than what we have done. That makes sense. The uh, kind of taking a riding back to the question I asked a minute ago. I'm kind of curious. Do you think you could do what you're doing now? Could you? Do you think you could have made gene expression like when you first came out of college? Like if you didn't do the mm. consultant, do you think you could have done it like through tenacity or do? Do you think like no. that experience level? No. No, a couple of things I, I you know, besides not having a, a full understanding of what it means to create a, a, a corporation, mm -hmm. you know, that's something I, I, I learned from working in, in a fantastic one, Nova Nordisk. The, 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 so that's one, the network that, that I created when I started my first company was critical in um, enabling me to assemble my team, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's, you know, I just, I didn't just take the, the guys I was in college with. Um, I took the leaders in that uh, particular fields of, from multiple um, institutions. Um, and I hadn't had the experience of being successful doing something completely crazy like starting a biotech company, which is, you know, when you think about it, very, very crazy because not only are you doing something that nobody's done before mm -hmm. and it, there's a very significant risk in terms of the, the underlying um, technology and science, you are dependent on outside uh, parameters that you do not control. So not only do you not have complete control of what's happening in the lab, you don't have complete control of um, your capability of raising the necessary funding to do what you want to do in the lab. So it, I, I think you have to be, yeah, a little crazy to even think you can do this. But I had, because of my experience at Nova Nordisk, and because of my experience working as, as a, a consultant, incredibly uh, track record, and I, I'm like, I think we can do it. <laughs> I'm like, let's give it a shot. I think we can do it. And we did it. You know, now looking back at it, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a walk in the park. We definitely had some uh, periods where we were banging our heads against the wall, but we broke the wall down and here we are. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, what can I say? If it was easy, everybody would do it. Something like yeah. that. It's not easy. I cannot recommend anybody to, to do something as crazy, but if you have tenacity, and I think that's the most important, you know, besides the other superpowers that you have to have, um, you have to have tenacity. I, I like to tell people, if, uh, like I get feedback on my interviews and mm -hmm. people say, oh, I want to do A, B, and C, and then I, I, I'll, I don't know, I'll give them feedback. But there's usually like this concern, like, it seems really hard and they don't know how to do it. And, and it's like, if it was, yeah, like you said, if it was easy, anyone could do it. And then why would you yeah. want to do it? Right. You just go do something else. You'd find the thing that isn't easy. And then like yeah. everyone, everyone's there, like everyone, everyone starts at zero and you have to go from right. zero on up. And, and, and so the last part of it, I, I do like things that are hard, right? So mm -hmm. uh, intellectually stimulated by doing things that haven't been done before. I did that even when I was at Nova Nordisk, I did it afterwards too. And and uh, and apparently that's you know that's my element. I mm -hmm. like stuff, <laughs> so it's good. Mm -hmm.
No, okay. Um, one one question that I don't know why this <laughs> your comment made this pop in my head. Why did you choose to come to America over like staying in Denmark? Like not not that we don't want <laughs> you. You know, like I, I'm glad you're here because then you're gonna make my life better. Like, why, <laughs> well, I still have very close ties to Denmark and we have a relation in Denmark, so that's not going to change. But um, I um, um, met my husband in the States in 92. Mm-hmm. And we, that's Yeah, so it, was a, it wasn't because of any. I think that it that was the, the main, main reason why I decided to, to take the risk of crossing the um, the water between us and mm-hmm. take a chance on him. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it was certainly not because I wasn't having a great life where I was, right? So immigration has different forms. And, and I'm, you know, personally a little concerned about the way immigrants are being characterized right now because 50% of all the U.S. Nobel Prize winners are immigrants. Mm-hmm. So if if you if you if you don't welcome immigration, the U.S. is built by immigrants. It it will change dramatically from what it's been in the past, and I think it's getting better by allowing people to to come here. So I hope that's going to continue. Yeah. No, I agree. The I think the a good example of what happens if you stop having a good immigration policy is like Spain when Spain during the, I'm a history fan. I don't know if you are, but the, the Spain during when they had like all of, all of the Americas and they had all this gold coming in, they, by the, by the end of, I think it was uh, Philip the second, they were basically destitute and bankrupt. And it's because they, they did the, the kill everyone, like get everyone out. Like they didn't like anyone who wasn't Catholic and they just started purging everyone. So like, like it's a, like that's the example I usually give. Like it didn't it didn't work out for them. Anytime in anytime in history where you try to be not like you don't like let other people in, like it usually doesn't work out for that country. So So you know, even in a corporation you can say and, and big pharma have certainly changed a lot. When I started working in the industry, pharma would do most of their research internally until they realized that ideas pop up everywhere and not necessarily within the people they have within their uh, walls mm-hmm. so being being open-minded and 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 you know obviously pharma now have become a distribution industry and they acquire uh, companies that succeed with uh novel ideas right you know they stop really innovating a lot you know you can say the same thing about any you can put the box around the company you can make a bigger box around the country and then you know at the end of the day it's all the world you know to a certain extent if if you believe that we are as good as the our ability to develop ideas and we need a a little bit more open uh, society in order to do, do that i think there's a reason why idea generation wasn't uh, rampant in China originally because it was a top-down uh, regime that controlled uh, what people were doing and instead of giving them the opportunity to do what they wanted to do and maybe generate new companies and but but again that that have that is definitely changed human evolution is based on on a, a generation of ideas so yeah so yeah. as somebody who appreciates 
innovation very much. You know, somehow doing anything that reduces uh, any particular country or organization's ability to innovate is something that will put you at a disadvantage. That's how I look at it. Yeah, I, I, I was talking to someone who's like, a, like, she's like one of the best recruiters. I was asking her, like, what, what's, the, what's the difference between like a good candidate and a bad candidate? You know, like, how do you find someone who's good? And they basically said that it really comes, like, you're really hiring for perspective, like, from perspective and then, like, interest in what they're doing. Because as long as they have, like, some skills, you can kind of learn what you need to learn. But if, if they have, like, a different perspective on something and they have a track record of, of, of innovating, like, that's really what you want. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of people my age, they think they need, like, those credentials to be successful. When it when it's more they like you're going to be hired based on your perspective and what you've done, and I don't, like I don't I don't think like a PhD it's like I think PhD is like a type of credential, but like there are, I'm sure there's PhDs who are not very smart that have PhDs just like anyone like it's an average like <laughs> like a like what um, math like the average just means like sometimes you're going to be talking to someone below average like I a complete transition but what are some I think I was reading you I wish I had the tab open but you had some book recommendations. There was like two that you thought. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. You like to read. And you, I, you I love reading. And I wish, I, you know, again, I could read many more books. Um, so, you know, some of the books that I think is worthwhile recommending that changed my perspective of, of who we are as uh, a race of humans um, is a brief history of, of humankind. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I bet, bet he selected that word very carefully. Um, and um, it's just, uh, it's this helicopter view of what humans have done on this planet and how we evolved and how ideas shaped our progression. That's also why I'm saying having ideas and generating ideas, implementing ideas is really the only limitation to how we can evolve. Um, so, um, you know, there's, there's, it goes all the way from we were just, you know, standing up on two feet to society today. And, and the critical things that had to happen in order for that, for, for us to, to evolve. And that's, that's one part of the book. I, by the way, I got my 17-year-old son and my 15-year-old daughter to read it. So it's that important. You know, they should teach it in, in history. It should be the first book um, they learned because it's easy to read. And so it was the conclusion that, you know, what really enabled us to move from tribes to uh, collaborating uh, in larger groups of hundreds and thousands and millions is three ideas of things that really do not exist God, nations, and money. Mm-hmm. None of that is, you know, real. It's not like a lion. It's not like a tree. But those ideas, we think about those ideas as if they're real. Yeah, no, I think about that all the time. <laughs> I think about yeah. the idea that our, the brain that was out there on, like, the savanna, like, hunting lions and stuff, mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. same brain that's figuring out, like, quantum physics. I would, yeah. I would think that there would be like a, a, a ceiling on our abstract thinking. And so I always wonder, like, what are we unable to see? Because we, we weren't, we weren't, we never, yeah. we never, there's nothing in our environment would, that would make us need those skill sets. 
like the environment, the evolutionary imperative to have understanding, like how to throw a spear and hit someone like plan is different. And then like, you can kind of see how like that would symbolically reason out to having Mm -hmm. like calculus and stuff. But I I always wonder like, what can't we know because our brains just didn't evolve a certain way. I would, I don't know. It's something I wonder about. I don't think you could answer. I'm thinking differently. I think that what is it that we still, where's the gaps, right? Mm. What, 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 where's the gaps in our thinking? And, and, I have another analogy for you because if you take a baby elephant and you put a chain around its mm-hmm. foot and, 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 and tie it up, it will believe that it cannot move beyond what the rope uh, allows the elephant to do. Mm-hmm. And as it grows up uh, to become a big elephant, you actually don't need a bigger chain. It was still, uh, you know, it will still move within the boundaries of uh, the the size of the chain that you give it, mm-hmm. although it could easily break it and and go away. So what I'm saying here is that we, when we grow up, when we socialize, our limitations is how we're being taught what to think, right? Mm-hmm. How we're being taught how to process information, and and how we accept certain mm, fictions as reality right and that shapes the way we think about things and and i can tell you one of some of my most exciting moments i had one um two weeks ago it took me a little while to really have it sink in and i felt like i was this elephant and i suddenly broke my chain in a particular problem that I've been having and thought about a lot. And that moment happened because somebody challenged the way I, I was thinking. And, and so now I'm diving right into Ray Dalio. You know, if you, have a, if you are creating a company that has a culture of always asking and never accepting certain facts certain boundaries as facts then you you're able to think outside of the box that everything everybody else is nicely behaving within um and and that's basically what we've done in terms of of the technology i just moved this question and and it was i've been so excited about that and uh yeah thinking about ever since that I, I can change the way I think. I, I have to, the minute you change the way you think, you your world shifts and the opportunities change. The elephant analogy is interesting to me because I think there's a Mark Twain quote where he says that loyalty to petrified opinions. It's been a while since I read it, so I'll, I'll try to get it exact. But loyal, loyalty to petrified opinions never broke a chain or freed a man's soul, and it's the same kind of concept that like like you're the elephant. It's a really interesting thing. What is there? Because you have like younger kids, so maybe you think about this. Is there things that younger people are thinking about? Like the people, like my my show has like a lot of people who are like twenty five to thirty five. So like I'm twenty six, so I'm kind of curious. Like, is there any other like operating systems or like ankles on my my that I'm not noticing? So, so you, my kids' generation. Well, I I think both you and my kids' generation have grown up. In, in with a computer at their fingertips. I had to go to the library 
Um, the first time I encountered a computer was actually the first day I started working. And it was, oh, I still remember it because there's one thing, there's another thing about me. I just can't keep my fingers off things. And I can get in trouble sometimes because I just push it. I've done that before because I'm curious how it works, right? So I've, I've, and it was just this blue screen, right? You turn it on, it was just this blue screen. What do I do next? I don't know if you ever had that experience because you are a little younger than me. Um, now everything is like menu-based. They didn't have it, uh, menus back then. And it's so much easier to, to uh, utilize a computer today. This is a, this is actually a fantastic computer. It was stronger, much much powerful than the first ones. But um, because you have all this information at your fingertips, you know, one of the things that I tell my kids is that ignorance is, is really a choice. If you don't know things, Google it, and and uh, you know, to a certain extent, it is a little less tolerable to not be not knowledgeable about things. You know, I think the excuses that you can come up with are less. Um, ignorance is a I, I, ignorance is a choice. Uh, <laughs> that's what my husband in the background. Um, coaching uh, young girls at risk uh, through ITRI, which is an organization in the Hamptons that help um, a lot of immigrant uh, young girls uh, are underprivileged, uh, doesn't have uh, parents that are available to uh, take them to museums or uh, teach them um, scientific basic skill sets, uh, help them through science projects, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, remembering one and I met her more than once now and she's pretty amazing um an iPad old iPad she started teaching herself math and science she skipped a grade and uh, I think actually she skipped two grades and she's just driven she won't this is what she wants and she's clearly talented right but she doesn't have she doesn't have, you know, what my kids had. I, I, they grew up in New York. I went to the Museum of Natural History, got them into the science program. They started science education when they were three. <laughs> um, you know, very hands-on. Um, but understanding science as, as if it was just, uh, you know, English. Um, I think we need to teach kids science um, as if it was just English. I have one issue with, with, I have several issues, but one in particular with the way we educate our children is that, you know, English and math, come on, really, is that it? You know, you focus on those uh, grades um, and, and make science fun, you know, get them dirty. <laughs> and, and that was what the program was about. So, yeah, I think that's important because there's, there's technology in everything that we do. So when I talk to these kids, I say programming is just like knitting. If you can knit, you can program. It's just a matter of seeing a pattern and then put things together. It's just using a little math to do it. And um, cooking, if you can cook, you, you, you can do chemistry, right? So you just have a recipe, you follow a recipe, and you have a result. 
and then you analyze that and understand it. So, yeah, I think we need more science in classes. I mean, I grew up on a farm, so a lot of a lot of things I learned. Like farmers are very scientific people, but like most people would think of farmers as being scientists. How they how they do their their fields? Like I always recommend people to grow things because you'll feel like you have to follow very like um, it's a lot of fun. I don't know if you ever like growing things, but I definitely recommend. I, I actually do. <laughs> I'm the first um, I've been growing things since I was little. Um, uh, I was doing garden. I was growing in our garden and when I um, got pregnant with uh, my first one I told my husband that in Denmark we always put the kids out in their baby carriages and obviously you get um, taken in by the police if you try to do that in New York because they don't understand that but uh, we found a penthouse um, so I could have my baby carriage Danish baby carriage with my babies outside um, Fresh air is very important for development of your lungs. And uh, I started growing everything from peppers to tomatoes, sunflowers um, on, on the patio. So I, and I do it here too. So yeah, I grow my own veg veggies over the summer. Love it. And there's a lot of science there. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, especially, uh, I like grafting. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but it's where you... Yeah, I am familiar. Uh, uh, yeah, you would. All right, so for, <laughs> for people who don't know what grafting is, it's like, uh, you, you can think of it like yeah. taking off your finger and attaching it onto your hand, like of another, another person. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, grafting is where you can get a lot of fun. I know a person who has made an oak tree that has flowers that will bloom at different parts of the year, so it's always flowering. Really? Yeah. Like, wow, it, it that's crazy. Them, it takes them eight years to make one of them because he has to do the grafting at specific intervals so it grows just right. And it's, wow. it's really beautiful. I think I think he's even in a documentary now. It's, it's very beautiful. And then like it fruits all year round so it'll have apples during a certain time. And no, that's a different tree. He, he made a tree that'll have different apples at different times of the year. But yeah, grafting is a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I will say that I don't know anyone who could grow a sunflower and not smile from it. Like when the sunflower comes <laughs> up, I was imagining when you were saying sunflowers, like, Sunflowers make you smile. I don't know what it is. Like, they just look... I love sunflowers. It's my favorite look, Yeah, they look happy. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what yeah. it is. But. They do. They do look happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And oh. these are great, too. Mm -hmm. I've never been able and to figure out... And they're great for birds. <laughs> yeah, I, I normally just feed them to the birds, but I haven't figured out how to eat sunflowers. It's it's a very silly thing growing up on a farm to not know how to eat sunflowers, but I've tried <laughs> it, and I, I've never been able to figure it out. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll try you it again. You just shell them. You put them in the cereal. They have a lot of B, uh, vitamin E and, um, uh, you know, um, essential uh, fatty acids. Mm -hmm. They're really good for you. You just, I thought you had to like crack them open and then take whatever's inside of it and then eat that. You can just. Yeah, but that's the seeds. I, you know, I have, I have to admit that I cheat a little bit. So buy them um, after they shelved. Mm -hmm. that's yeah. Easier, and I just put it, I make my own granola and I make my own yogurt. And I do that because, you know, another health thing is that uh, a certain type of bacteria in your gut is really also, it's your other you, it's not you, but it's living in some in very interesting symbiosis with you. Um, and it reacts on the kind of food you eat and, and you supplementing with the right bacteria is actually a great idea and has some very significant health benefits. Yeah, I, I was reading some research where uh, they, they 
had people eating yogurt that had a specific mm-hmm. probiotic in it. And after six weeks, the I think that I don't remember how they were qualifying this. Maybe they just like dunked them in, in water. But the mm-hmm. people who ate the yogurt for six weeks, it took them longer to get stressed out uh, about similar mm-hmm. events at the beginning. So like yogurt yep. somehow had like a modifying effect on their uh yeah, Moderate so, so you, you want to get your mind blown? They found this, you know, literally, we always knew that the bacteria in your gut had the impact on um, what you would eat, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's a feedback mechanism. But there's another mechanism, and this is, this is really crazy because they, they, they communicate with our brain through our nerve system. They send electrical signals. You know, this is crazy. They're talking with your head. <laughs> so, yeah, I totally believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's new biotech companies popping up everywhere that are using the latest bioinformatics of the ba- latest microbiome information to develop new interventions using the microbiome mm-hmm. um, for depression or other diseases that we treated very differently in the past i had a i had a guy in here three or four weeks ago dr gautam dantes he worked under he got his phd from dr church but um really yeah yeah he's 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 pretty amazing he's on the podcast too but um uh Mm. he's working on you know like when you travel around you have to sometimes take shots so you don't get illnesses right yeah yeah he's working on a microbiome modifying your microbiome so that when you basically take a a pill and it like soups up to your microbiome so when you Uh go into these areas your immune system is fighting it off naturally so you don't have to take a shot or something you can like your your gut is basically like fending it off i could have used that i was in india i was sick several times so yeah that's fantastic Mm -hmm. it was the it was the tail end i think that's what he's working on now so um yeah yeah, it's it's really fascinating stuff I, i don't even think we were really thinking about the gut biome for like 10, 15 years ago, but now it's... No, we were not. Yeah, we totally ignored it. It was the dirty end of things. It was just poop. It's not just poop. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, another, there's another guy named Michael in Boston who he's found a relationship between your gut biome and aging and Alzheimer's. Like uh, there's like, I don't know, there's, I'll look up his research yeah. and send it to you if you're interested, but uh, I'll put it in the show notes as well for yeah. everyone else. But I just... So the whole Alzheimer's... Thing, I think it's a lot, as you said, you can reduce the risk uh, to a third with lifestyle changes. But often we also look for the, we, we, we haven't really understood the mechanism. Mm-hmm. And, but we do know that anti-inflammatory agents also has impact. So a lot of this, this, this um, inflammation as, as a reaction of our own body towards life Mm -hmm. (laughs) has negative uh, impact and can be potentially also causative in terms of certain diseases that we we fully haven't understood uh, that. And that goes to, you know, autoimmune inflammatory diseases as this word says, but also cancer and and Alzheimer's. So CNS diseases too. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's, there's a whole, list of new ways of looking at diseases again as i said before we classified diseases oh this is this diseases of the brain but maybe it starts in the gut uh, i i had an ambition once to like start from like a like the like a 
one cell in the body, like a skin cell, and go mm-hmm. all the way in to the, the genetic level of like how it was made, like have like a chart like that. It was very yeah. complicated. I, I got like, I got halfway through. <laughs> and then I was like, this is, this just keeps going. It just, it's like one of those maps where it gets, like, I don't know if you've ever seen these maps where it starts with a human and you keep getting yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger. And like but, the sun is really Yeah, small. you zoom out, you zoom out, zoom yeah, out. Yeah, it just kept yeah. going, which was, I don't know, it's like um, at a certain point, I feel like the universe like inverts itself. Like we just keep going yeah, down. As we I go. agree. Yeah, yeah. Like, like a turtle on, a, on the back of a number of turtles. But mm-hmm. as, uh, as like the last question, this is like the question I always like to ask people. Because we basically just talked about how smart you are and the interesting stuff you're going about and, and working on. What, the, the question is, like, what's something that you don't have the answer to? About, mm-hmm. you know, it, it could be anything. I could give an example. But what's something you don't know that you would love to know? And maybe someone listening in could help answer that. But just in general, like, what's oh, that? Yeah. I'm thinking hard now. Um, there's many things that I don't know, obviously. Yeah. Well, the, an example, maybe that this will help. The one that I always think about is if the Big Bang theory, if the Big Bang is needed for the universe to exist, what happens if you take the Big Bang away? And what would be here if we never had a universe? I don't, that bugs me. And I haven't found anyone who can answer that. Like if the Big Bang theory, if the Big Bang didn't happen and it is needed to make the universe, what would be here if it never happened? Like what would be happening? Uh, it's just like a weird thing. I don't have it. I, I think it, it you know, I, you know, my, my big questions, I think they change um, over time. I, and I'm, I'm with you on the Big Bang. I, I think uh, space and black holes and all that, you know, all that stuff is super, super interesting. Something that I thought about a lot, and it, it goes back to what I said earlier, that uh, uh, when I started talking about the elephant, um, that our ability to really think about things is, is just limited to some of the framework we grew up in. Mm-hmm. I think that there are uh, additional powers out there that we haven't identified. And that, um, you know, and that translates into, you know, some of the new stuff that they are finding out in reconciling, you know, with this string theory, uh, what we can observe on the planet and what we can observe in the universe. And the mathematical systems or language that we characterize these different mechanisms or how things work basically. Um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, there are life somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I hope it's friendly. <laughs> um, and, and that ties into my last question, which is really when, when we think about how we develop ideas and that is the limitation on how we, uh, elect to socialize I'm really you know I would like to better understand what what makes people elect not to want to understand things mm-hmm. and, and do the research that you've done to understand why we need to not go back in time to that we are basically more alike than different and and to make uh, make the planet because what we do here in the states and what they do in China impacts the global um, environment. We need to stop thinking about this as something that can be governed by local governments. And to pull out of different agreements is just going in the wrong direction. So my my bigger question is what makes people 
be so ignorant that they elect not to understand the underlying science that supports everything from global warming to the idiocracy of thinking that a nationalistic approach to trade will benefit anybody. So, so maybe, maybe I can frame it. Why do people elect not to understand information? I don't understand that. And that was Dr. Peterson. Remember to check out her stuff at genomicexpression.com and learn more about what she's working on and be supportive of it. And if any of this inspired you, send an email to me. I like to hear, I like to hear people's stories and what they got excited about. And feedback is great. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell This Year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.